Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. Now, this episode of the Gig Life Podcast is a really special one for me because it's episode 100. Wow. I'm not going to spend too much time on this as it's taken away from the uh, actual episodes, but thank you. Thank you for listening, for sharing, for supporting the Gig Life Podcast. If it wasn't for you, uh, I still wouldn't be doing it. So, Thank you, thank you for listening, 100 episodes in and we're only just getting started. I hope you can cruise along with me, heaps more interviews in the pipeline, more spotlight episodes as well as some new stuff coming up so I can't wait. Also I want to say a big thank you to all my guests over these 100 episodes. Thank you for sharing parts of your life with the listeners and I, Uh, you have taught me a heck of a lot not just about your life and music, but about myself. So I'm forever grateful for that, grateful for all of it. So I wish you all the best for continued success in your lives and careers. Now, today we're carrying on with the Spotlight Series. Now, the Spotlight Series is where my friends and I sit down and talk about our favourite musicians, be it local, be it worldwide, musicians that have influenced us, inspired us, impacted us as musicians ourselves. We talk about their careers, their music, their legacy. This is not a new concept, nor are we changing the game here. We're just hanging out, bouncing stories off each other, sharing information that the others may not have known, but in the process adding to the legacy of these brilliant musicians. So today's episode is all about legendary American bass player and composer Jaco Pistorius. Francis Anthony Jaco Pistorius III, born December 1st, 1951, was an American bass player and composer. Jaco was a member of Weather Report from 1976 to 1981. He worked with Pat Metheny and Johnny Mitchell, Paul Blay, Herbie Hancock, amongst others, and recorded albums as a solo artist and a band leader. His bass playing employed funk, lyrical solos, bass chords, and harmonics. Jaco tragically died on September 21st, 1987. He was 35 years old. He's been called the most important and groundbreaking electric bassist in history and perhaps the most influential electric bassist today. Joining me to talk about Jaco are four of Australia's premier bass players and friends of mine. Steve Hunter, Victor Rounds, Mark Costa and Adam Ventura. These gentlemen have all been guests on the Gig Life podcast previously, so for more info and the individual interviews, with these guys, please go to thegigloftpodcast.com or click on the links in the show notes. We've all chosen a bunch of songs that Jaco has played on and maybe some you wouldn't expect to hear. We'll listen to some of those songs and we'll give you our take on them. We'll talk about his influence, his sound and his legacy and hopefully do our bit to add to that legacy. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to turn the spotlight onto the greatest bass player in the world... Jaco Pistorius. 
I think we're rolling. Now, this is episode 100 of the Gig Life Podcast. Thank you, boys. We, um, we're doing a Spotlight Jacka Pistorius um, episode today. And today in the room we have oh, – we're at, oh, I might say we're, at, we're downstairs at Lazy Bones in Marrickville. And this is, this is awesome. This is, um, this is cool, man. I, I, I didn't expect to be in a place like this for, for 100 episode or any episode. I think it's great. Um, usually all the uh, podcasts that I've done have been at your guys' homes or um, I think when we did the bass player one – that was in my out the back of my place, um, but yeah, never like on location. It's pretty cool. I feel pretty special. <laughs> so with me, with me today, talking about uh, Mr. Jacko Pistorius, we've got Adam Ventura. How you going, brother? Very well, thank you, Stevie. Congratulations, man. Thank you, sir. Um, Adam, you were episode number four, yep. and then you were also part of the bass players roundtable. Um, next to Adam, Victor rounds. Thank you, Stevie. How are you, man? Good, mate. Congratulations again. Thank you very much. Super ton. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Mm-mm. Thank you guys for being part of it. Um, I can't remember what episode number you were, but you, you're there. And um, thank you. <laughs> you, were, you were also in the um, the bass players roundtable, and I was also thinking today that you've actually been on this more than anyone else because you d- played a little cameo when I spoke to Abe. Oh, right. Down, yeah. Uh, at Christmas. Yeah, Christmas around, when, when Abe was in town because you were coming in and giving us beers and chips. Yeah. So you've actually you've actually I been was on. the host. You're the host. <laughs> cool. Um, Mark Costa, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, and congratulations. 100 not out. Thank you. Fantastic thank effort, you. mate. Thank you, mate. Um, yeah, Mark, you were, you were the first episode of – 2019. That's what I do remember. All oh, right. Yep. And it was at your house too, in your house. in your lounge room. Yep. And yeah. We were and you had a little Zoom recorder. That's right. And now look at you now. You've got <laughs> like the like the TARDIS. <laughs> you got the you know. Yeah. It's too much. I've got the Zoom and the thing. I was contemplating just sticking that in the middle of the table, but nah. Once you hear the, the good audio, you, you can't go back. You can't go yeah. back. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Mate, pleasure to be here and pleasure to be in such esteemed company. Nice one. You know. Mm. Steve Hunter, how are you, man? I'm good. Happy to be here. Thank you. Congrats on the 100. Thank you. Um, this was actually your idea yeah. to do the the, the uh, spotlight. Yeah, because um, I'd heard your Steve Gadd one. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. I listened to the whole two plus hours of it. And I, <laughs> I thought that it was great. I thought, well, maybe you should do it on Jacko or someone. Yeah. Yeah, and then you sent me a message and yeah. and I was like, oh, Jacko, oh, how about like Pino or, or Nathan East or something like that? And you're yeah. like, nah, nah. Jacko, man. So, so who we are. Well, I don't, yeah. Yeah. Not that they're not worthy. Oh, of course. They of certainly course. are, but, yeah. you know. But, you know, when you hear those guys, those drummers talking about Steve Gadd, mm. just the love for that guy. And, yeah, totally. And just the uh, the breadth of, or how much he changed the game. There's not many bass players that have changed the game to the same extent, but Jacko did. Yeah. 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 Mm. And I think I was number fifty-nine. Uh, I right. think maybe my episode was just before or after Mark's, I remember. And I remember it was it was really hot that day. Was it? Yeah, and we sat in your studio. Mm. And um <laughs> you said to me, Do you mind if I smoke? And I said, nah. And he goes, and I think you said to me, it wouldn't have mattered because I would have fucking had one anyway. <laughs> 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 was I that obnoxious? Or something like that. 
it's his house. <laughs> you just, yeah, you just you basically had your, hand, your arm out the window the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. uh, yeah, it's cool. pathetic, isn't it? Anyway. All right, Jaco Pistorius. Now, um, my name is John Francis Anthony Pistorius III and I'm the greatest bass player in the world. Hmm. Now, what do you think of when you hear that quote, Adam? Um, I think that he was had an amazing gift and part of that gift was that he knew that he had that gift. Like he, <laughs> that he, he actually, the confidence that it took for him to, you know, how well he knew a bass, how well he knew the role of the bass, how well he knew the role of every other instrument in the band, how, um, how he heard music, everything, he was just sure. He was just – and I think he was like early 20s when, when, when did that quote. Didn't he say that to Zawinul before he, he did, was yeah. in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He was in his 20s, you know, like – And he said, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, which many people probably would have said yeah, that yeah. to him, you know, uh, especially someone as seasoned as Zawinul, you know. Yeah. I think that the, the – I mean, a lot of people would let – especially in Australia, we've got that – Tall poppy things, you know, someone who mm. talks like that would immediately be like, yeah, get fucked. Yeah. You know, no, <laughs> and I don't think don't think so, buddy. But, you know, I I feel like there's a certain amount of confidence in um, amazing players, especially players with a, a very distinctive voice, people who really know what they hear and they throw it down and, you know, I definitely didn't have that confidence in my 20s and I don't even think I've got – I don't have that confidence now, but, you know, to say something like that. But this guy was – this guy was on fire. He had the – he had had it in him, you know, and he definitely did flip um, the music world, bass playing world and, and the music world upside down with his voice. It's, mm. It was about his voice and being really confident about that voice. So, mm. you know, like I don't – I don't, you know – deny him being so confident that he would say that to Joe Zamanal, but, you know, you've you got to back yourself, you know, like, and I feel like, you know, as a bass player to be going out there playing the way he did, sounding the way he did, doing doing what he did, um, you need to kind of be confident. Yeah. And that was like uber confidence, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Uber. Yeah. Uber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much what you just said. <laughs> um those kind of words, you normally hear that coming from people like Napoleon Bonaparte or some of the great conquerors of the world. And I think at that stage <clears throat> he had done enough to sort of gain that ground of such great knowledge being the base instrument as such. I mean, it was like here's a new weapon, even though it's been around for a long, long time. This is where the bass is actually going to stand out now as, as, as a focal, well, as a lead instrument in any ensemble as such. So, yeah, he definitely, <clears throat> when he appeared, it just rattled me. I just thought to myself, what the hell is, who's this, you know? It actually scared me. I just thought to myself, bass was in a safe place uh, <clears throat> until you had the likes of like Stanley Clark who sort of brought it to the f- forefront mm. to a point. Uh, and then along came this other character that just brought music with it that just blew everybody away as far as playing bass. You know, it's like it was a lead instrument and it mm. could play anything that any other instrument could play mm. as far as melody, um, you know, anything. 
he could emulate anybody, which he did, and which showed in some of his albums where he, you know, Donna Lee, for example, mm. stuff like that. Mm. So it was a challenge, and it 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 <clears throat> it was almost like the 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 coming of the savior for us bass players because all of a sudden it's like, guys, get up off your asses. There's more to it than just holding mm. down the, you know, the groove or whatever. There's this and there's that and then there's the level. It's just getting higher and higher. And it was basically up to everybody else who was around at that time to go, shall we do it? It's not shall we. It's like, oh, my God, this is what we have to do. Mm. We have to learn our craft, you know. And just depends how far you wanted to go and whether you had the ability or not. He showed us that he had the ability, he had the facility, he had everything, you know, and it was just like mind-blowing. So he definitely set a standard for not only bass players but every other instrument, string player for that matter, because Mm. he was playing lines that guitar players wouldn't really think about playing, you know. I don't know whether it was the four strings that, you know, the the limited – the limit of four strings as opposed to six strings, you know, he just accomplished more. Yeah. Mark? Yeah, well, I agree with both Adam and Victor. You know, he was certainly larger than life um, as a player and also as a person too. I I just rewatched that uh, Jarko documentary um, the other night in preparation for this podcast and, uh, you know, he was certainly, you know, in his – in his glory period, you know, like the late seventies or mid seventies, right through to the early eighties, he was um, he was conquering the world. Mm. You know, he was you know, the record deals and playing with Weather Report and mm. you know doing all this, playing all these amazing recordings. You know, Janie Mitchell, you know, Michelle Columbia, you know, it, all sorts of stuff. He was just on top of the world. You know, um, so yeah, he was the world's greatest bass player, in my opinion. You know, because I hadn't heard anything like that. No, that's not to say that there were other guys out there not doing similar stuff. I mean, you look at people like Bunny Brunel and Jeff Berlin. You know, there was there were other great bass players. They, they just weren't telling everybody else that they were the greatest bass players. Well, you know, they were doing their thing, but you know, Jaco was kind of um, I don't know. Let's let's call it that he was. He had certain opportunities, like playing with Pat Metheny. You know, um, playing with. Um, uh, weather report and stuff that, that that kind of shot him into the stratosphere so to speak he's you know debut album as well you know i mean all that it was kind of like a perfect storm in a way you know so he was kind of very much at the forefront you know very highly highly visual um and uh yeah he certainly had the larger than life personality to back up this incredible talent that he had on 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 redefining our instrument, he kind of pushed the envelope, didn't he, guys? You know, like no one was playing like him. Um, well, certainly in the, you know in in my consciousness, you know, my world, mm. you know. Um, and it was interesting, um, you know. Victor brought up about Stanley Clark. Like I was very, um, you know, I was about uh, what was it about thirteen or fourteen when Jarko kind of entered my my world, you know, and and I'd already heard of Stanley Clark. And everyone was kind of revering Stanley, you know, being really flashy and, you know, playing with Return to Forever and, you know, he had his own solo career happening. But there was just something about Jarko for me um, that just kind of put him, you know, uh, ahead, you know. That's probably my own taste. But just there was – Jarko certainly had um, something else going on in, in my opinion and, uh, 
as I said, I, to me, he was the world's greatest bass player. I didn't know what he was doing when I first heard uh, that, you know, Donna Lee off that debut album. I was, I was a kid. Um, I'll probably tell that story in a minute. But, um, yeah, it was, you know, um, I've, he's, he's kind of been in my DNA um, you know, I've been playing bass for over 40 years now and, uh, you know, and Jarko's always been there, always been there, you know, from the moment I sort of heard him and then I've kind of like checked out Donna Lee and, and, and you know, and, and other recordings and tried to copy his like percolating 16th note thing and and all that and, uh, yeah, he's still he's still there in, in my DNA. So, yeah, and to me he is the world's greatest. So, yeah. Awesome. Steve? Yeah, when I think of that, I'm the greatest line. I kind of, I think of, um, I think of him saying it with a twinkle in his eye, kind of thing. You know, and almost like laughing at himself, saying yeah, yeah, yeah. it. So similar, similar to Muhammad Ali in that way. Mm. Totally. And there's something about those guys too that it's kind of, you know, when you say the greatest in music, you, you can't really, you know, there is no greatest. In, you know, that's a matter of opinion. But there's something about just the size of the spirit. You know, when, you th- when I think of Muhammad Ali, what, I think of the size of the spirit of that guy. And, I mean, there was, the, there was Joe Frazier and there was George Foreman and there's Mike Tyson since, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but still Ali is the greatest. And I think of Jaco like that. You know, there, there were other great guys around at the time. I, I, the, around the time I first heard him, I was also listening to Stanley. And there was a fantastic bass player called Doug Rauch who died quite early. He's on some albums by Billy Cobham and Lenny White. And he was sort of somewhere between Jacko and Stanley. That's an oversimplification, but he was an amazing bass player, Doug Rauch. He died when he was 28, though. And Alfonso. There were these great guys. And Rocco was doing Tower of Power, already doing albums, you know. So there were other great guys, but there's something about, I think, Jacko kind of... I think he was almost like he was outside of himself, watching himself doing it. What the hell? It's like <laughs> as though he was somebody else almost. It was like yeah. that this sort of thing. Me. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do yeah. <laughs> Check me out. Yeah. <laughs> and I do remember reading a thing with him where, he, where somebody had said to him somewhere, like, you've got to get a manager. And he, and he said, well, I can do that do that myself. Yeah. So I was just sort of this, this bravado of he, he had a kid at 19, his first child was born when he was 19 and he had to go out, get out there and earn a living and make a mark. So I think part of that great, I'm the greatest thing, I, I, I think of it, you know, the, that he was saying it with a twinkle in his eye. I don't, obviously he had an ego, but I don't think it was purely that though, you know. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the first time you ever saw a bit a video or, or heard Jaco or um or yeah was it a recording was it on tv um adam we'll start with you uh, my dad's a bass player and he programmed me and you know, vic knows about this business programming your, your younger child to listen to what you listen to pretty much <laughs> currently attempting to do it to my children um <laughs> it's, it's failing miserably but uh yeah, my dad – so I, I probably started playing – I got a bass when I was 12 or 13, but I didn't really kind of kind of peg it until I was 15 properly. Like that's when I went, yeah, I've got to do this. But my dad had been playing records to me when I was in primary school. Like it was a sort of a Sunday thing. He would kind of be sort of fried after gigs. You know, he would get up at the crack of noon 
and then we just sort of pot around in the afternoon and he put vinyl on and it was I, I just I was probably maybe story eight nine you know and he would play all these incredible records like he play all the Santana records all the Earthman and Fire records um, Benson. And there was this, and it was Oscar Peterson as well. I remember, I remember distinctly these particular records. And then there was the Jocko record, you know. And you know, we're talking eighty. So I was born in seventy five. So this was probably eighty three, eighty four, something like that. So obviously, I'm a bit. I was a bit late to the party because I wasn't actually born when he was, <laughs> when he burst onto the world. But my old man, for some reason, the way my dad pres- presented at least the side of a record. He would always play, you know, like so, so this side of that record and this side of that record and he would play this one a lot. He played the Jocko album a lot, you know, and I just remember going, wow, so that's the instrument that my dad plays, you know, and dad was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> he'd be sitting there like vibing hard, like just going, check it out, man, <laughs> you know, like can I be like, yeah, cool, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the hell is going on. I hadn't actually even picked up an instrument at that point. So I had a bit of subtle program but Jocko was firmly embedded in my um, consciousness is as from the very beginning that that a bass can do what he did, mm. you know, which, you know, people have done to different measures of success, you know, over over the time. There's many failures too, I'm sure. Um, maybe I'm a failure, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know, like I, I definitely started out thinking like, okay, well, that's the pinnacle right there. That was the thing. And it was that – there was that record – and then by the time I started actually playing, so the first time I actually saw anything of Jocko playing was the um, uh, the the what's the video the the um, instructional video? Oh, modern electric bass. Yeah, yeah, with yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I I wore that out. Yeah. I wore it out. I even recorded everything from it. I recorded all the the musical sections, even just him, him where he jams over himself, and then just every musical bit. I I did a mixtape of that video and I, I smashed it for years and I learned I tried to learn all the stuff from it. By the time I was 15, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to do stuff. I had no idea. I had no idea. You know, when I went to my first bass teacher, I was trying to play Portrait of Tracy and I was sort of picking it out going, it's, you know, and it was just, you know, he was going, oh, you like Jocko, do you, you know? And then he just floored me by just busting out used to be a cha-cha, which is one of the tracks I think that we've got on I Just Speak Like Child used to be a cha-cha. And he floored me as my first bass teacher, Paul Pulley, which I started with oh, him cool. when, yeah. I, when I was 15. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And um, yeah. and so at that point, you know, like I, I was diehard. I'm playing electric bass. I'm playing jazz. I'm, I'm into jazz and I'm going to be – I'm going to I'm gonna try to play like Jocko, you know. And I was back pick up all the way. I was like f- forcing it, you know. Like it was, I did everything wrong. Everything was wrong. But, you know, like I had a great teacher who sort of – moved me through it and he kind of moved me into other areas as well. He, at some point he was like, you know, you can't do, you can't play like Jocko on every gig, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't do that, you know, you can't do that back pickup thing all the time, dude. And I was like, really? Oh, okay. No, thanks, man. <laughs> you, you know, and I, <laughs> so he kind of, he was sort of responsible for me sort of looking a bit further afield. But at that point when I was like 15, 16, I was all about it, man. I was all about it. I did um, Teen Town and, Donna Lee for my recitals and, you know, I was, you know, I was just a massive fan. Everything that he said in that video about learning the standards and about learning uh, yeah, how bird was the word as well, like, you know, Charlie Parker was mm. the real deal. Like I was, I was like, I was fully immersed in the uh, gospel of Jocko for 
very much the beginning of my playing, you know. Mm. That was the kind of thing. I sort of, I don't, I'm not, you know, I think I took my teacher's advice because I found that gigging-wise I needed to sort of learn to make a few other sounds on the bass, you know, that, I, you know, I didn't know what it was. So it's been a long time coming. But, yeah, the first, the very first thing was my dad playing that record before I even played a bass and then that video, you know, that video just was literally part of what taught me to play bass. That was, that was, I was all about that. I just wore it out, mm. you know. We had a couple of dubs of it <laughs> because I kind of smashed it. You know, that was, that was me. That was my introduction anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah man, I was, I was in my mid-twenties, man, when I first heard Jaco. <laughs> and that was Donnelly, actually. Just came out of nowhere. Nobody told me where it came from. I didn't even know it was a solo, like part of the solo album. And uh, <clears throat> so you, you can imagine mid-twenties, I already started playing bass when I was about 13, 14. And through all that period of growing up in my teens, I was just learning. I got I got hooked on soul music and funk music, so I, I started discovering all these bass players that were on albums, and which is what we did back in the day. We just read the liner notes and go, "Oh, is this bass player?" Well, no, no, you know, it's great. And I was just loving the groove, and then <clears throat> into the early twenties, and then you know, Cobham came along, and you had Stanley Clark, and it was like, "Whoa." Here's another area. I should explore it, which is great. I did. But then what spoiled it all was when Donna Lee came out and it was like, holy moly, this is another world, you know. So, um, yeah, my first exposure was hearing Donna Lee and uh, really didn't get to see much videos of him until later on when, uh, like Adam was saying, they had these instructional bass videos and I saw him for the first time. Mm. He sort of seemed a little bit sort of, CD or something, you know, it was like, okay, he's this is like, uh, and then you read about the, the guy's history and his background, and he obviously was having a few personal problems and blah, blah, blah. Um, but he, I mean, he had this amazing bass player, you know, Jerry Jamont on there as his sort of student, yeah, te- uh, not teacher, but interviewer, you know, and yeah. ask him how did this and all that. Yeah, well, look, he, <clears throat> Jaco, he, um, he suggested. Well, he wanted Jerry to, to be that role for that video. Right. Because they, they came to Jacko and said, we want to make this video. And so he went to Jerry and said, look, they want me to make this video, man. I want I want you. Yeah. yeah. Well, he always admired yeah, he Jerry he was, from he his early hero. days. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because <clears throat> reading about Jacko's um, um, upbringing, I mean, as a young bassist, he was playing a lot of cover bands and wedding bands. Yeah. And all they did was R&B, soul. That's it. Yeah. And that was his first introduction into like playing music in, in a band in a situation so <clears throat> which kind of made me like all through the later years I j- you could hear that influence as much as he sort of changed like we all did we all grew up and we all educated ourselves to new music whether it was jazz or whatever he, I could still hear that sense of R&B in him mm-hmm. just by I'll talk about it later on yeah. when, we, when another topic comes up yeah. but yeah Donna Lee was it First exposure. Yeah, well, um, I think I told this story in my my podcast, but um, yeah, I went to um, my dad took me to Ed Gaston. Ed Gaston was a famous American bass player that lived in Sydney who was playing with Don Burrows. Um, I had a very brief um, foray into acoustic bass, and Ed was like a, the gun um, jazz bass player on acoustic. 
And my dad thought it would be a good idea if I had some lessons off Ed. Bad mistake. <laughs> I was a terrible student. Um, but anyway, I remember one of those uh, lessons where um, Ed had the debut Jarko album and he said, check this out, and he put on Donna Lee. Isn't it funny how it's, it's that one song that's just uh, – and. But, but, you know, at that stage I was a a bad electric bass player. I was an even worse acoustic bass player. Um, I didn't know what the hell it was I was listening to. Um, I was just hearing the whole track and – but I knew it was good but I didn't understand it. But And how I knew it was good is because I could see Ed really digging it. You know, Ed was like bopping along like, you know, he's not dancing but, you know, bobbing his – shaking his head you know along with the track and just smiling and just sort of glowing um, while hearing this track and I got a sense that it was an an amazing it was amazing on some level I didn't understand what that level was at at the time Um, so that was my first sort of you know um, the first time I heard Jarko the next time I heard Jarko would have been um, Heavy Weather the album Heavy Weather um, Birdland was like the big single off that album, you know, and I, I think I heard it on the radio. I was buying albums around that time, around 77, you know, I bought like the Earth, Wind & Fire, the I Am and uh, All in All, um, Toto's first, you know, debut album and then I happened to buy Heavy Weather as well, you know, three completely different or four completely different albums but that was that was the 70s, you know. Um all amazing bass players, but I, and I remember listening to Heavy Weather and kind of, you know, understanding that, that, that what Jarko was – like I was, you know, playing bass, I got a sense that like what he was doing was an, was amazing, you know. I mean, you know, you had Teen Town on that album, Havona, um, Palladium's on that album too. Yeah, just all this, this amazing music on that, on that one album. And I knew, I knew it was great. I knew that he was a, this amazing force on the bass. What he was doing was innovative and um, it was amazing. But it was so far removed from me as a bass player. I couldn't really make a connection or even, even think that, hey, one day, you know, I could learn that solo or I could learn that, you know what I mean? That didn't, didn't come until much later. Um, it wasn't until I met Steve Hunter to my left uh, here where when I saw Steve play for the first time on the Fair Star and I could I could see Steve kind of like, you know, playing, you know, you were kind of heavily influenced by Jarko at that stage. I mean, I was like 19, Steve was about 21 or so and Steve was kind of playing that stuff and I was like going, oh, my God, you know, wow, this guy's playing Jarko stuff, you know, like he, and he had it down, you know. I thought, you know, this was incredible. And then I thought, wow. If he can do that, then I can kind of cop all that. And then anyway, as I developed as a bass player, I started to sort of like understand a bit more about what Jarko was doing and all that. But, uh, yeah, anyway, back to the question. Yeah, my first um, exposure to Jarko was uh, listening to Donna Lee. Mm. Yep. Cool. Okay. Steve? Yeah, my first um, was Black Market uh, and, and he only plays on the two tracks on that record Alfonso Johnson plays on on the other four tracks and uh, the two tracks that Jacko plays on um, one's called Cannonball which starts off with a beautiful sort of fretless singing and I thought it was just it emotionally just moved me straight away like a singer you know 
where you get a bit of a lump in your throat. Mm. And I don't think I'd been – I don't think a bass player had had that effect on me before. I mean, I'd been blown away by, like, Stanley, you know, like some of the things on um, Stanley's first record and, sa- and second record. But I hadn't been moved, like, in that way by a bass player before. And then the second track he plays on is actually his comp- is Jacko's composition, Barbary Coast. And it had a way of playing funk. It was just so clear in this sort of, uh, and it wasn't too fast too. It was it was kind of a, a medium tempo, but sort of syncopated sixteenth. So you could really hear the syncopations. And at first, I thought it, it was a clavinet or something. It was just so articulated and clear, and the subdivision was so clear. And and I realised it's it was a bass, and and um, and it and I thought. That's and I'd I'd, I'd had a problem. I've had a. I mean, it was my own head, but I'd had a problem with what funk was for me as a skinny white dude, you know, <laughs> from from the south of England, you know, born in nineteen sixty. You know, I kind of there was Stanley, but it, he just looked so cool. You know, he was like this black guy, like six foot four, and yeah. and, and sort of. I don't know. I just kind of thought, well, I'm, I ain't that. But then there was something about, and then yeah, you know, there was just something about the way that that he played that sort of, which was funky, but a different kind. It wasn't sort of maybe not quite as urban. It had more jungle in it, or something, or it had some had the Everglades in it, or something else in it. And I could sort of relate to that, and it, that gave me a, a real thing of, wow, like, who's that guy? You know, or well, I knew who it was because I was reading the covers. You know, you read yeah. the cover back then as you as you're listening to the music. And so I just pursued it yeah. straight away. I just knew I want to know about this guy and I just mm. found everything. You know, there was Al Dimiola record and Pat Metheny album, Joni and other weather report and, mm. you know, the whole, the whole lot, you know. So I just sort of gathered it all up. And um, so, yeah, that was the first to answer your question via, via China. But that's um, <laughs> that's that, 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 that were the first tracks I, I heard, yeah. Cool. Um the common sort of song that was brought up um, there was Donna Lee. So I think that might be the first track we yeah. have a listen to. So we'll just listen to it together. And It's so funny. Can I just chip in? Yeah, of course. <clears throat> I'd never heard Donna Lee before, uh, meaning that, you know, the original being yeah. Charlie Parker. Yeah, yeah, right. So it, right. I, I discovered Charlie Parker through Jack. Yeah, yeah. So that makes yeah. sense. I think we all do. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then when I actually heard Charlie Parker's version, I thought, Freaking hell! You yeah. know, Jacko's just learnt every bloody note at the same tempo on that documentary, Mark. Yeah. There's a there's a spot in that documentary where they actually have the Charlie Parker. They have it up, and against. then they and and Jacko's right, right on, on top there. of it. Every note, the phrasing's exactly <clears> the same. The phrasing was just amazing, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's sort of like I do I do remember this. Okay, my first attempt at Donna Lee wasn't Donna Lee, so I went to another Parker tune and I picked Scrapple. Because it was just a little bit less, uh, <laughs> you know, complicated. Yeah, yeah. And I nailed that sucker, and I thought to myself, Jacko, I can't do Donnelly, but I could do this. Yeah. And that that was my favourite standard to go to if ever I got booked for a jazz trio back in the day. Yes, yeah, it's like call one Vic, do scrap. <laughs> Here we go. Thank 
from my yeah. eyes. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. You play an air bass on that one. Oh, man. You know, I mean, what an incredible start to an album. You know, like you, you, you got this debut album by this cat, you know, Jaco Pistorius, and then you put the needle down and that's the first track. I mean, it's grooving its ass off, you know. It's it's him on a fretless bass in congas, you know. Yeah, and he's got the, he's like the form. He's got the form in his so, head. So There's no one else backing him. It's just the form in his head. Plays the form, does his solo. Um, okay, Don Elias is right there behind him, but he's that's all he can do is just give him this really comfortable groove while he's just on his own. Just mm. like he doesn't need any chordal accompaniment, nothing. It's all in his head. Mm. And it was one take too, I believe. Oh, no doubt. Oh, mm. yeah. <laughs> Although I, I might say that, I mean, I've heard and maybe Steve or any of the guys can back me up, I believe he may have... I don't think the whole thing is completely improvised. Oh, it's completely yeah, 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 compl- yeah, compl- yeah, yeah. Because yeah, there's, there's, yeah. there's another recording. There's another recording that's been released more lately. It's called uh, "American Modern American Music Period." That's the name of the album, and it's got an earlier recording of Donna Lee on it's it, and it's exactly the same. It's yeah, exactly yeah. the same. What's it called? It's called "Modern American Music Period." I think. Modern, it's got a. Oh yeah, yep. yeah. Compositionally, it's incredible. Like you can just yeah. hear every, you hear every change. He's super melodic over it. It's like the rhythm is impeccable. Yeah. Like it's just there's, it's it's flawless. And I don't care whether he improvised no, it or he no, composed it. It's done it. incredible. <laughs> yeah. No, because yeah. nobody had done it before anyway. Yeah, and my favorite, yeah. my actual favorite bit, like it's, I still get the same reaction whenever I listen to it because I'm just like. This is just incredible. Mm. But I love the key change. The key change, he, yeah. He flips it into another key. He says e and then just does his mo- – yeah. he goes into E and just does his monster thing and it ends up like, yeah, yeah and it's a bass, yeah. motherfuckers. Yeah. You know, like, like <laughs> it's an E, you know, you know. Like, but he kills it. It's just so amazing. I mean, you know, I, I agree. You know, like if, if it, whether it's improvised or compositional, I don't care. It's just, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a killer track. Yeah. But what I love about it is that it just – it encapsulates so much – Jarco, you know, like I mean, the harmonics, you know, he's got a command of the bebop language. There's, you know, tritone substitutions, things going on, you know, the fluidity. He's phrasing like a horn player, you know. No one was kind of doing that in the electric bass, or not, you know, um, on 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 such a scale. Um, so, you know, that would that that track really was basically just like, hey, bass players, you know, here I am, you know, or actually music. Musicians, here I am. You know, this is, I'm making a statement, and what a statement it was, you know. And, you know, it was like. And to pick a saxophone as a 
as an instrument to uh, follow by. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's not like I'm going to go out and do copy Bach or yeah, that's or right. Beethoven. I'm just going to find a funky sax player like Charlie Parker <laughs> yeah. and just go for Donnelly because I think it's a great tune. Man, I think not challenging. Yeah. I reckon he just picked it because he just yeah. loved that tune and yeah. just yeah. You know. Well, it's a challenging tune on the sax on any instrument, you know, yeah. let alone the bass. And I, I agree with what you were saying before, Vic. I think that after all the bass players heard that track, everyone bought that Charlie Parker Omni book and just studied it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it was like this. And, you know, there are certain giants that sort of happen in, in our world where they just kind of push boundaries and that's what Jarko did. You know, he, I mean, he pushed boundaries. Um, you know, bass players weren't playing bebop, sax bebop heads on the bass, you know, and on a fretless bass too. On let's just, let's not forget that. <coughs> a homemade fretless <laughs> you know, bass. You know, and hearing it just then, like I haven't heard it this close in my ears with these headphones in a long, long time. Man, the intonation is just killer. And the no, and it's just peachy clean, isn't it? The articulation is just you know it's it's swinging its ass off. You know, um, I'm passing the mic to back to Steve. <laughs> Makes me think about um, when I, you know, when I I learned later that it was composed, and I, and for a, for a brief moment, it sort of took away a little bit of the magic of almost like oh, thank God. You know, like, <laughs> like, because it's such incredible. It's incredibly. Composed, it's just such a beautiful composition. I mean, uh, Bud Powell can improvise things like that, but, but um, it made me, it made me to, uh, then reflect on, you know, uh, there was that whole sort of character of Jacko. You know, it was almost like a cartoon. But when I think of pre Weather Report, the, you know, having learned about sort of pre Weather Report Jacko, like before, say before he was twenty five. I think he was twenty three when he recorded that album. It's um, and I think of John Francis Pastorius. I think of this guy. It was just incredibly studious guy to to sit and compose this stuff. And then you think about his first album with opens with that. Um, so that's a statement. Then the next track, well, here's my take on, uh, you know, come on, come over. Here's my take on a sort of rhythm and blues, Tarapari kind of vibe. And the next track, here's continuum with a sort of sweeping, fretless, slurpy kind of fretless tone. And then there's the harmonics <laughs> with uh, Portia de Tracy and there's, that's, there's that. That's new. Then there's the thing with the congas and, and uh, Uncle Collier Trompa with the yeah. French horn, which is like that may as well be a sort of new music, contemporary classical theme almost. So it's kind of – and there's the string arranging and then those yeah. beautiful ostinatos like on Kuru, Speak Like a Child, you know, with the Herbie Hancock changes in amongst that. It's sort of so well considered and laid out. Like here's this, here's this, here's this, here's and, this. Insanely eclectic. And he, yeah. Insanely eclectic. Like that, yeah. that record is crazy. Isn't it? And it and it kind of makes me think too what an incredible job um, Bobby Columbi did of yeah, totally. producing it because this was a 23-year-old guy. I mean, he knew what he wanted to do, but I think Columbi had probably quite a, a sway in, okay, I've got this genius here. Yeah. What's the best way we can present this guy to the world and just open it up track by track? It's, it's a, yeah, it's a masterpiece. It wasn't, a, it, sorry, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a it was sorry, it wasn't a commercial record by any stretch. It wasn't like no. pop songs or anything like that. I mean Steve's just going through the track list just then. I mean, we're talking about really eclectic yeah. 
amazing music, you know. It was all about the musicianship and, and uh, well, you I know. Think, I think the producer, Bobby, recognised that and he thought this was a great showcase, Yeah, you yeah. know, like Bobby coming from where he was, you know, like Blood, Sweat Blood, and sweat, Tears yeah. and all that. He kind of could see beyond that and it's like let's just showcase Jacko on the world stage and this is what he can do kind of thing, you know. Pity they don't make records like that nowadays, eh? It's all about the artist, you know, well, the musicianship. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's another podcast, right? Yes. <laughs> Jesus, we're planning no, all I the have... bass podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and it was really brave of Bobby Columbia too because it's I think really, as far yeah. as I recall, that was the first act he signed. He got a mm. gig as an A&R guy. Yeah. And his first guy signed as a solo bass Bassist, player. Like, what was and he it, thinking? And it must have had a fair budget, you know, to get Herbie and all those people on it and, yeah. and strings. And It sounds incredible. It's yeah. an incredible sounding album. Like, yeah. I think it's just like a perfect album. Yeah, like Sonically, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's I just where I, everything is. Yeah. I can never get sick of listening to it, Me any neither. of it. You know, yeah. like it's it's one of those ones that just you can put on and go, oh, you know, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of those albums and that's one of them for me. Yeah, definitely. me too. There's so much to there's so much to absorb, isn't it? Just not just the bass playing, but also oh, just. Everything. I mean, he was. A, 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 I mean, um, I hope we get to speak about Jarko as the composer, arranger, yeah, yeah. you know, and all that. Because I mean, he was, you know, he was an incredible musician. Period. Yeah. But he just happened to play, you know, the bass at such a high level. You know, mm. yeah. I think he, because because um, Bobby Columbi tried to crack onto his missus. Hey, that's how that's how he found out out about Jacko. Mm. He That's saw right. he saw um, Tracy, Tracy and he said, "Oh, this girl's really really cute." So he tried to put the moves on him uh, on her, and he said, "Oh, are you married?" And she went, "Yeah, yeah," to the greatest bass player in the world. Oh, so she was carrying yeah. the message as well. And then yeah, and she then this, the message. And yeah, then okay. this, uh, I think later on in the night they they That's went out. Like they went this. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear this guy. And, and he went out, and there was this skinny guy, and that shut him up. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And uh, he now he walked up and went. Hi, I'm Tracy's husband. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Then Columbia kind of said, well, shit, she wasn't kidding. <laughs> That's yeah. right. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about Jacko's sound and, um, um, you know, the story about behind him, you know, taking the frets off the bass and, um, you I've know. I've various stories about Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see if we can somehow mm. find find the common story, perhaps, yeah. um, and maybe talk about his, um, you know, his rig and and was he getting into effects sort of early on, and what do you guys kind of mm. what's your take on that? Well, there there were go, there were people like Ralph Armstrong was doing it, playing fretless earlier, and Alfonso was playing. You can find this there's an there was a band from New York called Catalyst. Of which Alfonso there's a they did an album. Alfonso Johnson plays on half of it, and Anthony Jackson plays on half of it. It's like 1972, and um, Alfonso's playing fretless. So there were there were people playing fretless, and then I've heard that that Jacko bought a fretless from somebody, and then I've heard that he was that he took the frets out with a putty knife and mm. did all that. Um, so I don't I don't know the. I don't know what the true because he he story says in really that is. instructional video doesn't he that he 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 says that basically he was getting into jazz that this is what this is what he says on the on the on the um, video anyway um, that he was getting into jazz and he got himself a double bass and he but he's from Florida that's right and that the, the you know like that he he put a, cost him a lot of money and he 
had got the double bass and he had it and then one day he woke up and it just it exploded. Just ex- it exploded yeah. into a million pieces. From the humidity. And he was like, fuck <laughs> that. And then so he um <laughs> right. and so he just took it and then he took that he took a, a knife to his frets and just thought, well, I'll just make this fretless. You know, it might have been a thing where like I've I've spent the, all the money that I had and I have this bass here, I'll just make this fretless. So yeah. make, you know, like, you know, when uh, fenders didn't fenders of that age didn't cost um, ten grand. You know? yeah. <laughs> so what was what was the uh, fretless bases of the day back then? Like who were building them? Don't know. Don't know. Good question. In the early seventies. I mean, I mean, I'll look it up. I mean, you know, for um, the likes of the, the plays know, that you mentioned. Don't know what Ralph Ralph's one was. I think Ralph's might have been a precision base, but I don't know if that was a he bought it as a fretless or whether he he was converted it. either. Yeah. Even where the fender was actually making them at the time. Yeah. Were they making fretlesses? Well, mm. Never really looked into the history of fender fretlesses back in the early six. Uh, I mean, didn't Jarko, like when he ripped the frets out, then he filled the the, the, the cavities with the epoxy, like boat, boat glue or something yeah, like that? Was, or, some, yeah, or putty or something? Yeah, putty. And then he, then he put then some the epoxy in. Yeah. Mm. But. The, I mean, but I mean, how how uh, fortuitous it was that you know that he kind of did this kind of DIY thing on his bass, and yet it still sounded great, and was on all those recordings. And what's the, that's the bass of Doom, isn't it? That they that particular bass, the sixty two sure jazz. I'm not sure if that's the that's the one, but you know, like mm. by, after that record came out, surely he just would have been people would have been sharing him with yeah, that's right, guitars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fender probably went start making them stat if they weren't already <laughs> making them. You know what I mean? They would have just yeah. go. We need to start making <laughs> making these things fretless. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't know the history enough. But correct me if I'm wrong. I think Jarko throughout his whole life played just Fender, right? He didn't. I don't. I don't recall him playing any other brand bass. Um, I think like publicly, but you know, there was kind of like when he was living rough in the '80s. Apparently, he kept sort of oh. hawking them and stuff, yeah, and yeah, you'd yeah. see him. You know, like he would have different axes all the time and stuff like that. But I'm pretty sure he yeah, that was his thing. He was the Fender yeah. Fender fretless. Yeah. I think, so. I think on the on the instructional video, he's actually playing a, 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 a like a it's a, a jazz, but it's got a precision neck or something. Because yeah, right. yeah. he was ta- he's yeah. talking about like his his fingers, not that that yeah. during that uh, video. Yeah. How about when he swaps the basses with um, oh Jerry Jabari? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and he still makes the bass sound like his. Yeah, <laughs> when Jerry like, plays it, it sounds yeah. awful. And yeah. then when Jarko's <laughs> like, wow, same bass. Kind of felt sorry for yeah. dude, but you know um, the ever the ever trusting internet here is telling me that the first person to use a modern fretless bass is the Rolling Stones' Bill Wyman. Wow. According to his coffee table book, Bill Wyman's scrapbook, he converted a cheap Japanese bass to fretless as early as 1961. Wow. And used it with his first band, the Cliftons, and then later on with the Stones. Yeah. Mm. There you go. Didn't know that at all. Does anybody know any Stone songs where you can hear fretless on it? Mm. No? Anything, no? No. No. I think I recall him playing it on a film clip, but, yeah, but that's not live or on a record or anything, you know. Mm. It's like, yeah. Um, Jarko also was playing acoustic amps as well. We were talking about mm-hmm. the acoustic amps. Um, you know, that kind of features heavily on um, um, some of the live weather report. Um, videos um, was it the 370 right acoustic 370 or was it the 360 360 right um, with all the knobs you can see him doing all that and um, Jarko was also playing around with uh, loop pedals as well 
Mm. You know, like um, you listen to his solo slang on the 8.30, the Weather Report live album. Mm. You can hear him kind of like you – know, and he's also like on the, the Joni Mitchell, Mitchell yeah. Shadows and Light. You know, so he – you know, I mean I actually kind of got into Jarko um, kind of later too, like around about the um, early 80s and stuff. But um, I don't know, did he do the – we see Weather Report came to Sydney in like 79, 78, 79. Didn't yeah. they? Did they did the gig at the Horton Pavilion? And did he do the slang bass solo in that concert? Yeah, jumping off the amp and the whole yeah. thing. And yeah, and so he did the loop. Too. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. That was part of that whole tour. I think every gig did yeah, right. pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Is, that's that's the solo when he puts this video yeah, of him. And he puts off. it on the ground and he's playing the harmonics. Playing the harmonics and he, in it, yeah. yeah. And he lets it feed back and he goes off stage and then you just see yeah. him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he, he used distortion as well. Like, mm. but that was all, it wasn't a foot pedal, it was all from the amp. It was distortion it? on the amp yeah. and um, delayed um, reverb, like on like the rack, mm. you know, like not like the old Roland 301s, but similar. Mm. And he just sets it up like that. I mean, for me, if you watch um, Shadows and Light and you see him doing that on featured on that, to me, that's better than pressing a pedal. Yeah. Like, yeah. It just yeah. makes the noise. Sets it. Yeah. The audience are waiting. They're going, this is going to be interesting. Mm. Yeah. You know, and he just gets it right. Yeah. Sets it right. Goes back to his loop pedal mm. then starts up, you know. Oh, and then goes <laughs> back and just does one yeah. more tweak and then he's. Yeah. And then he just like. And then whack. Yeah. And goes around and then he plays Third Stone from the Sun. That's right. Tribute to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And then the hills are alive with the sound of music. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But just before that, he just he's, he's mucking around. You could tell like he's probably not get the right sound or whatever. And he goes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. the loop's still going and then he, he walks yeah. back out, doesn't he? Just he goes, can imagine yeah. like Joni and the rest of the band, you know, side of the stage go, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? <laughs> but that was a momentous, a magical moment because – Oh, we can talk about it later on, yeah, but, yeah. you know, everyone was on the same plane, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I mean, it was the late 70s, man, yeah. early 80s. Yeah. There's other shit going on yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah. Got mobile phones and everyone's staring like, who's calling me now in the middle of the gig? No, yeah. it's none of that. It's just yeah. like, hey, man, where's the blow? Yeah, <laughs> completely. <laughs> Someone's taking my line. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that dragon? Yeah. <laughs> shit, we're on now. Turn that bloody thing off. <laughs> so he does. He comes out and then he hits yeah. the stop switch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great times. Mm, man. Um, let's listen to another track now. Mm. While we're on Joni then, why don't we listen to Coyote? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hadn't actually heard the song and I was just saying to the fellas before when I, when I heard it a couple of weeks back, it made me cry. Yeah. What a beautiful song. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get the one off? Did you get the version off Ajira or Shadows and Light version? Or Shadows and Light version. No, nah, Ajira. Do you want the do you want to hear the live version of it? Oh, which which was which version made you cry? Almost cry. Well, it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> which which one which, one did, which one did you pick? Which one did you pick? Uh um, it was a little trick to why I chose that. It was just an introduction. It was like a key into the actual concert, Shadows and Lights. So. Okay. But, yeah. I'll, I'll find that version of it. Okay. So you guys talk a little bit about about Jaco and I'll try and find it. I've talked about the sound okay. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. You right. touched on that. And I, <clears throat> when you listen to, um, 
you know, the first, the, the, the self-titled album and um, things that were recorded just right around that time. The sound was sort of, I mean, you could always tell it was him right throughout the whole playing history, but the sound really changed quite a lot, didn't it? Like it kind of got brighter and brighter. You know, yeah. the sound that he used on Mr. Gone was much yeah. brighter and he kind of had more echo on it or was reverb or something going on. And I noticed that with a few players like um, the same happened with John Patitucci actually. Like, his sound got brighter and brighter and it made me wonder whether as, you, as they started playing like big rooms, like 5,000 seaters, whether they sort of started putting more tops on it to sort of be heard in a, Cut through. In a, in yeah. a bigger space, you know. Because I, I just love the sound that he makes on that first album. Absolutely. Much more so than, say, Mr. Gone, even though I still completely love that. But mm. And on that, there's a Herbie track that I picked that's, um, again, a, a different sound. Again, it's kind of a bit brighter than the first album but not quite as bright as the Mr. Gone, you know. Yeah. It actually did change quite a lot. I think your theory is the, the bigger shows and the, that I think that's a pretty good, I think that, but I also reckon the recording changed. Right. You know, like I, th- I think people, you know, like the, the, the moves in recording from from the 70s to the 80s was, you know, and I, I'm I'm a massive, I can't seem to get my head out of the 70s to be honest because I just love the way everyone played, the way the instruments sounded mm. and the way they recorded things, you know, yeah. just valve and tape to me just makes everything better, you know. Yeah. And, um. And I know people are always people nowadays are trying to go back or buying that mm. kind of gear or trying to emulate that gear all the time because to me that that was the sound. But mm. um, definitely, I definitely recognise that you know it kind of got brighter, more kind of a bit more, um, sort of a little bit more aggressive too. Like you know, like it, f- it felt like you know, like he he it's it's almost like he was born full, full almost fully formed, and it wasn't really he just had like a, a he only had a short run before he yeah. was untaken away. But like that, he um, he sort of was developing, and obviously he started going into sort of a, his own kind of crazed kind of period where he's not well mentally, and you know, like you, you those club recordings with like Hiram Bullock and and the really the Green. I mean, like you know, like people are sort of like people are kind of down because he's just it's just hectic. But you know, like and he had that whole thing of the punk jazz vibe. But I sort of just feel like it was like he was just throwing stuff out there and, you know, like it was a reflection of where his head was at, you know, like where he'd been and where, you know, the the path that he'd taken and it yeah, definitely, right. the sound sort of changed, you know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. yeah it, it just, it, it reflected his condition, yeah. you know. Um, I think back then too, I think our sounds would have been changing as well, you know. Yeah. We were just going with what's, what was coming or what was there, you know. Yeah. Uh, Playing in the studios quite a lot. Engineers had different ideas that they'd give you and or suggest to you. Uh, a bit of that influenced my sound as well. Uh, it was hard. It wasn't hard. It was, there was an adjustment of sound in the studio as opposed to sound on stage. Yeah, yep. totally. Uh, <clears throat> after Jacko's like worldwide sort of uh, appearance, uh, a lot of players started to get the pull the Jacko sound. And after a while, it was just sort of getting a little bit over the top. You know, people were sort of not emulating it, but trying to get that sound. You know, I certainly learned from Jacko that man, that back pickup, that was a killer. 
Mm. You know, all my life I was just playing both pickups or front pickup. Mm. I actually thought the back pickup and never even gave it a thought about, oh, it's too thin. It was only when Jacko came along and made it a lead instrument, it was like, oh, okay, let's explore that territory. Um, For me, even today, I still use a little bit of back pickup. As soon as there, like, is there, if there's like a a solo, it's like, take a solo. I go straight to the back, just round the front pickup off a little bit, Mm. have that back pickup, add a bit of bass boost. So I haven't lost that that bottom end. You know, I don't want I don't want to sound like Jacko, mm. but I love that back pickup sound. And the other thing is, you cut through, mm. you just cut through all the noise, whether it's a big band or whatever. You just cut through, and then when your solo is done, go back to your normal sound. Mm. And Thanks. also, can, yeah, also his hand placement too. He's he's playing right near the bridge, right? Right near his the right bridge. hand. It's a combination of that the, the back pickup and and the his bridge. hand placement. Yeah. That's right, and the way he was articulating it all kind of like was all kind of became his sound, you know, like playing back there. I mean, when you do recording, like, you know, you're doing like a commercial recording, I mean, the hand's usually around the middle between the neck and the bridge or maybe in the front if you're playing like a more bassy reggae kind of thing or, or a Latin thing. But he was kind of like playing quite back near the bridge and the string is much tighter there, right? So he's actually kind of like a, you're getting a, a more of an attack that's kind of happening. And then with the back pickup with the, the mid-range, which is cutting through, and he's playing that, that, as I mentioned, that percolating 16th thing, and that's the perfect sound for that because it doesn't kind of like get in the way. It's sort of like it's, it's, it's kind of got a thinner sound that kind of… You get a nice staccato sound from the back. Yeah. Just close to the bridge. And that, that's where your playing has to be really mm. clean and concise. Yeah. Yeah. But while we're talking, I'm actually kind of thinking it would have been great if, if we were had some insight into, um, you know, what, um, you know, was Jaco direct into the board? Was there a combination of amp and direct signal or, or what or what were the mics that they were probably using on his thing? And also um, I'm thinking about the bass, bass tone that he gets on Bright Size Life too. That's an ECM album. Which sounds different again, right? You know, like it was kind of like a more, I mean, obviously you can hear it's Jarco, but it's kind of like a more mellow sound. So I think uh, what Victor was saying about different engineers, you know, they've got to, you know, how are they dealing with this sound, you know? Okay, well, I think it should be, it sounds like this, you know. I don't know. I think it'd be quite fascinating um, to sort of get that insight, you know. Yeah. Um, I found that version of Coyote. Okay. I'll never listen, eh? Yep. Yep. Different sets of circumstance I'm up all night in the studios And you're up early on your ranch You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail While the sun is ascending And I'll just be getting home with my real to real There's no comprehending Just how close to the bone and the skin And the eyes and the lips you can get And still feel so alone
house burning down In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night We rolled right past that tragedy Till we pulled into some roadhouse lights Where a Classic. local band All those harmonics, when you play in the key of C That's where you get, you just pull them all out And that's the beauty about that particular track. I mean, it's it's played in the key of C, so he's just exploring it all over the neck and he's just picking the right moments because you only go through three chord changes, you know. I was was playing with this track the other night on keys (laughs) and I couldn't even get the right-hand voicings of what he could, Mm. you know. I mean, that's just how the bass is set up as Mm. such. But um, it's just a classic example of him using the whole bloody neck and finding just different voicings on the harmonics. Because it's those harmonics, that's that's what got me when I first heard that. Oh, okay, right. The track yeah. and on, on the studio version. So on the live version, he gets a little bit cheeky with Don. They both look at each other. <laughs> you should see that concert. And he does, and that's where he breaks into his little R&B thing. You know, he just found that moment where Don's kind of smiling. There was a comment on the lyric, I think, at that moment where he says, where Johnny sings, he picks up my scent on his fingers while he's watching the waitress's legs. That's it, yeah. They make a little comment. They make a little comment. It's a great concert. If you watch it, I mean, it's the energy is just so manic. I think, like I said before, there was a lot of, Stuff going down, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe. yeah. But you know, he was he was uh, he was MD of that uh, that band for a little bit until they sacked him. Yeah, because <laughs> he, 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 he just wasn't showing up for, for rehearsals, rehearsals yeah. and sound yeah. checks and stuff like that. But but that didn't affect his playing. Mm. I mean, the, just the rapport on stage was just. A, you could see they enjoyed it, but there was still that sense of seriousness and this mm. is the music. We could be out of it. We may may not be, but we all know where we are. Yeah, you know, amazing. Can I make a comment on the how lyrical his solo lines are? You know, I mean that beautiful opening melody that he does. I mean, you know, when I that was one of the things that struck me about Jaco was that like. If I was a singer, I'd sing those lines, you know, because they're just so beautiful, mm. you know, just beautiful melodies, you know. And I think it's on this version, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but at the end he's kind of doing a similar a solo. Like he, he doesn't do it on the recorded version. It's just all the harmonics. No, he does it. He's, he does it in the end and everybody knows what that's, that's like the tag. He yeah. does that little melody line and that's it right. comes back to that. Yeah, yeah. So can you, can you play the ending there, Steve? Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's beautiful. That's not as I said. That's not on the recorded version. It's just like he's just playing the harmonics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like fade. But 
you know, that's just such a beautiful um, lyrical playing. I mean, it's one thing to kind of play fretless and tune and all that and, you know, but he's just, you know, taking the lead there. It's just such a – so lyrical. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. If I had two bucks in my wallet. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. As you know, the Gig Life Podcast is free. You don't have to pay anything ever. But if you find the value in the Gig Life Podcast, you can donate or leave a tip. Go to thegiglifepodcast.com, click on that donate button, and give as little or as much as you like, and just know that anything you give will go back into creating great content for this podcast. All right, back to the episode. Let's talk a little bit now about Weather Report. And, um, yeah, who wants to kick that one off? You mean Weather Report with Jacko or Weather Report? Yeah, Weather Report with Jacko. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's – I mean, I'm a complete Weather Report nut, but all Mm -hmm. the whole span of it. Yep. Um, And I suppose I I entered the picture, well, with Black Market, which was where where Jacko and – was just taking over from Alfonso. Mm. Um, and it's, it's been said that when he joined, the, that was where it, they all of a sudden went from being basically a college band, playing colleges and stuff, to all of a sudden playing arenas. And, and I guess Birdland was, the, was a hit. Mm. Actually, Birdland was a hit, just as a little aside, Birdland was a hit in three different decades. It was a hit in the 70s with those guys that was on the radio. And then it was a hit in the 80s uh, with the Manhattan Transfer. Actually, it won three Grammys as well. Weather Report won a Grammy with it. The Manhattan Transfer won a Grammy with it. And then Quincy Jones did it on, uh, I think his album was called Back on the Block in uh, in the 90s. And that won a Grammy as well. (laughs) So the Birdland was a hit in three different decades, three different versions. So I guess they had Birdland on there side to, to sort of launch Weather Report as a bigger band. But I I, I love Weather Report with Jacka, but I, I, to be honest, I don't love it any more than the other three mm-hmm. eras, eras with the other three bass players. I, I love all eras of, of Weather Report. Um, and as much as I love Heavy Weather and Mr. Gone and Night Passage and all those records with Jacko on it, ultimately it's probably not my favourite Jacko. My favourite Jacko is his first album and Bright Size Life. Yes. And actually there's a really obscure album, or pretty obscure. It's a it's a Paul Blay album. And it was done in nineteen seventy-four. Jacko was twenty-two at the time. Um and it's got Pat Metheny on it too. Pat Metheny was like nineteen. And we're talking about somebody mentioned either Vic or Adam mentioned before how Jacko was sort of came out sort of fully hatched. That's a fantastic example of hearing hearing that because you, the ideas are fresh and he's sort of running around, but you can hear that it's, it's sort of the sound and the concept is completely intact. And actually, Matheny's on it. You wouldn't even recognise that it was Pat. You really wouldn't. And yet two two years later, Matheny did Brightside's Life and that became the Matheny sound. But you listen to that Paul Blay record with, um, with Pat Matheny, you wouldn't recognise Pat. But Jacko's sound on that is really... It's really beautiful. I really love that album. It's re- I, I think of that album as his uh, his bitches brew. His and Pat's bitches brew, because th- th- those two guys they're ten years younger than all the guys on bitches brew. Like all those people, like Herbie Hancock and Chick and 
um, Wayne Shorter and McLaughlin and Tony Williams. Jacko and Pat are 10 years younger than them. And that album with Paul Blay has got that really nice open exploratory kind of improvisational. Sorry, what's, what's the name of the album? It's just called, um, it was released a couple of different, it's just called, if you put Paul Blay, Jacko, okay. you'll get it. B-L-E-Y, Paul Blay. There's actually a tune called Jacko on it. But, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that. The song's called, the song There's called a song Jacko. called Jacko. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Do you wanna... the... Yeah, why not put okay. it on? It's really open and exploratory. I love it. Have you ever got? Have you guys heard that before? I've I've heard that record. Right. Brightside's life, like I I love Brightside's life in the first record. I'm sort of a similar that I can't kind of move outside of the the first album and Brightside's life for me because it just just has that kind of like it's just so um it's not raw. It's just charged and it's and it's stark or beautiful. You know, like there's something something just kind of like yeah, it's not. Even though the the first record is just it's so incredible, like there's so much it, you could go that you'd be wowed by mm. everything that's on there. It also just sounds just soulful. Everything sounds like his attack on things is like it's like he's a he's a he's trying to emulate a vocalist and a percussionist yeah. at the same time mm. on the bass, and that's what and that's like a, a, something that I've taken from him. For like as a as a musician, if you you know as any any instrument, like if you can be as melodic as a as you know, lyrical as a singer and as rhythmic as a as a, yeah. as a conga player, he's got a great, just a great sense of music. Absolutely. You know, lyrically, he's just always performing. 
Yeah. Yeah, it may not be the bass at that moment, even though he's playing the bass. Mm. He might just start thinking like mm. a, a singer, mm. yeah, exactly. scatting mm. or instrument player such, you know. I also think it's it's pre-drug and alcohol, Jack. You know? mm. Yes, that's true, mm. true. You know, because he was a really straight kind of guy yeah, until yeah. he joined Weather Report Weather because right. Wayne and Wayne, Wayne Shorter and Joe were seasoned <laughs> campaigners. They're, they're, tough, they're tough men, yeah. men of yeah. that generation. They yeah. really knew... They could. They knew how to drink, so, <laughs> and he didn't. You know, Jacko didn't. And um, there, there's something about that early stuff when he was a studious guy, and he was still during the recording of those two albums, the Bright Size and the debut album. It was still kind of John Francis Bastorius, this guy. Yeah. It wasn't Jacko. You know, it wasn't this other thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a feeling that he, that he even felt compelled to be Jacko, whatever that was in his head. Mm. It was something other than um, once. Once he got out in front of those yeah, massive crowds, fame, like, yeah, 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 and it must be that must be a hard thing to deal with. Mm. You're you're a young young man of twenty four, twenty five, and all of a sudden you're you're God, mm. and you're and people in, just throwing stuff yeah, at him and, lots of money and yeah, all the rest of the things. Yeah, that's it. And um, you know, and he and he had the I guess the underlying bipolar situation was mm. was also there. Mm. Which probably came into play uh, along with the the coke and the and the alcohol and stuff. Mm. So there's something maybe about that in that in that music that that Adam's talking about. You know the the earlier stuff. There's something there's something pure pure about it. Yeah. Well, let's mm. let's listen to to Bright Size Life because that was your track. Goes in the left and pats in the right, and you can hear that in the headphones. Yeah. listening to that what do you reckon was he playing through an amp and the desk at the same time could you hear the amp I think so 
Yeah, it's a. a it's, Do you reckon it was an acoustic camp? I'm, I'm not sure about that, but How yeah. Can you hear that? Wow. It's just it's it's, awesome. it's it's a fuller sound. It's not yeah. as thin as what we've been hearing. It's not a direct know. sound. It's a it's a back to front sound on the bass. There's a lot of air around the sound. Mm. You know, which yeah, a, a reflex like, speaker box, mm. which makes me think of uh, an acoustic bass amp mm-hmm. in the studio. I could be wrong. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, they, they probably would, would have would have had an amp. I yeah, had an amp and just put a microphone in front of it. Mm-hmm. It could have been his call. Mm-hmm. He might have. He just maybe. And he said, "Man, I just want to hear that rather than mm-hmm. with this." I mean, they all had headphones mm-hmm. to hear themselves, I guess. But probably want to hear just, it how we've been rehearsing it. Possibly, <laughs> yeah. You know. Actually, before Adam talks about, sorry, Adam, just one sec. Uh, but um, I. Uh, I can't remember if I read or saw an interview with Pat Metheny, but he said that the original bass player was supposed to be Dave Holland for this mm, album. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But he went with uh, Jarko because of the energy. Mm. And that was to what you were talking about before. Like Jarko brings a certain energy and a spirit. You can hear in his lines he's searching. It's kind of really highly improvisational. It's almost like it kind of pushes you, you know, to, to hire. Same thing with Joni. She thought yeah. she'd just try that team of yeah. Metheny and Jacko. Yep. Yeah, and Don Elias as well. For, yeah, that's right. For his contribution, not as a flashy drummer, but just to lay it down. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Lyle Mays. Oh man, how can oh, we no, forget that? Band. Michael know, Brecker. <laughs> Brecker. Oh man. You know, I mean, we're Bunch talking. We're talking <laughs> texture, technique. Oh, yeah. You know, out of this planet, back in the A team, mate. But there you go. You yeah, know. definitely. Just getting back to uh, shadows and light. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Adam. Uh, uh, <laughs> Everyone's familiar with that uh, dry cleaner from dry cleaner from Des Moines. Yeah. Okay, so the blues. Um, do you remember that that part where it's just Brecker and and Jack on their own, and he's like playing this blistering sixteen field, just no one else, just him and Brecker finishing off the tune. Man, for me, that was just like what the fuck, you know. 16 triplets. 16 triplets, yeah. mate, towards the end. And not for a short period, no. for a very long period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and him watching, yeah. if you see the visual, like he's checking out Brecker and he's like, yeah, I'm keeping – not I'm keeping up with you, but it's like Come this is where me, it's boy. at. Come with me, boy. Yeah. yeah. Brecker doesn't have to make any contact. He's just – Yeah. Awesome. Just the respect, that's all. <laughs> the way he plays on um, – he, he was – Virtuosic is not even close, you know, like to what he was able to do. We're going to listen to Havana later. There's that line in Havana that just does my fucking head in every single time. <laughs> it's from the bottom of the bass to the top and it's just like, what the fuck? And every time even I've listened to it, I've just listened to it like the last couple of days again and every time I'm just like going, damn, what is that? But, um, you know, I, I just love his lyrical accompaniment playing. Like the style that he kind of plays on there, he goes into he goes and goes into that, especially when he's it's got that more Latin kind of feel to it. Just his the way he kind of converses with whoever's like soloing, whatever melody's going on, and then just pockets. But he just it's but it's not the same thing every time. I think that was the thing that everyone was like, this is what everyone fucked up as well when they try to copy. I think they tried to copy Jaco. Was like he's not playing. He hardly plays the same thing twice. Sometimes you know some of these mm. things. But he's actually conversing with them and he's, it's so incredibly musical and lyrical that it just – it never sounds out of place. Like nothing he plays – like I can sing his bass line in that, in that, in that song, you know, because I just love what he does. The other one I can do that in, which is um, on the 
and the, the first album, the debut album, is um, the, the the halftime party used to be a church in um, Karoo. Karoo Speak Like Child. And that, that halftime section, he plays that same style. He shifts his hand up to, towards yeah. the neck and he just lets the fretless just go, wow. Yeah. Like it just lets it speak. And, but it's so beautiful. It just sounds like an incredible singer. Like, but he's, but he's, in, in, he's, he's perfectly supportive. Yeah. This is what everyone, I think what a lot of people probably didn't quite make it to, you know, like it's not only lyrical, it's not only virtuosic, it's not only rhythmic, as, like tight as, you know, like, but he's, he's rolling as an accompanist. Yeah. Broke all the fucking rules of bass, yeah. like yeah. you know, you're not just staying, you're not just sticking to that that yeah. thing. You're actually gonna he, 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 he. There's a theme to what he plays. That there's some things that he's obviously got a line, and you know, yeah. Barry Coast is a classic. It's a classic line, yeah. and but you know, he, he, he goes when he plays up to the neck. I saw it still reminds me of that when he, in that interview where he says, you know, I took the fets out because I couldn't play the the double bass. Yeah. So that's almost like his salute to the double bass that he'll play that nice big fat yeah, you know, up sound. near the neck, yeah. up, you know. So so what's what's that in? That's speak, oh, we're just that's talking about that. Kuru, speak like a child. We're talking about Kuru, yeah. There's yeah. A, and that's the reason I picked that tune, a couple of reasons I, I chose that tune. Um, there's a couple of things. One, because that, that well, Kuru is, is Jacko's contribution to that. It's Kuru slash speak like a child. Speak like a child is a Herbie tune that is a, actually a title of a Herbie album. Um Kuru is that ostinato of, of Jacko's, that sort of repeated 16th thing. And one of the beauties of 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 Jacko's thing when he played those 16ths, those ostinatos like that, was that it's it's not on burn, it's actually on simmer. It's just percolate, it's just bubbling and it doesn't, even though it's very noty, it actually doesn't get in, in the way. It's just yeah, sitting under right. there. That, that's a real kind of revelation to me of, of, of a way to be able to play a lot, play quite a lot, but if, you, if you've got when – you, when you can play that way without struggling and, you know, tensing up and all that and it's just actually quite easy, it's such a beautiful way to play. You can just stay on one of those things forever and you don't even want to play anything else because it just feels so nice. It just feels like a carpet. But then it goes into the into the speak like a child section of that that Adam was talking about, where just the push and pull of the notes that uh, he's playing these long notes, and then but there are little short notes within it, and just sort of sliding slowly, it's just carrying the chord to the next. It's it's really artful the way he plays that um, speak like a child section, and actually, there's stuff from from the Herbie Hancock recording with Ron Carter playing bass. That I realised, I, which I heard much later, but I realised that Jacko's really checked out r- what Ron did, yeah. what Ron Carter did on Herbie's original recording of it. Anyway, yeah, gorgeous. Mm-hmm. See how sometimes that that's anticipated, and sometimes it isn't. On the going to the one. Sometimes it's right on the one and sometimes it's not. Right. <laughs> Herbie just kills 
on est sans man. C'est so good. Like I could sing this whole thing to you. I'm not gonna. That would really sound really shit. It's like little little commas and full stops and yeah. colons and semicolons and just sort of making it breathe. He creates his own melody. He creates another melody, a perfect counter melody. Have you guys learnt to play this? Have you tried to play it? I've, I've played it, but, mm-hmm. but I haven't. I've I haven't uh, sort of tried to play that exact line, you know, like on the slower section. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I know that ostinato really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can, yeah, I can hear bass that shit, but I can't. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> the fast line is the one you can kind of jam along with. This part is just like. Yeah, that's going to happen. That's going to be different every time. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't want to wreck it by even trying. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I, I, I've sat with it before, but like, mm-hmm. you know, because it's I, response to what's happening. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's what's, insane. What the piano's doing and what the drums are doing. Yeah. It'd be different too if you did it again, mm-hmm. if yeah, Herbie, mm-hmm. but Herbie never plays the same thing twice. Right. He even admits that. Man, how funky is this line, man? How funky is that? You could, you, and you get a sense that he could do that all night. Oh yeah, know, all night. Wow. <laughs> Strings are incredible on that as well. So organic. Who are you going to say? No. Oh. I was just commandeering the mic. I, just, oh, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to say anything. I just didn't want Mark, Mark to say anything. He's about to. <laughs> what do you think um, 
and especially the, the educators here, what do you think Jacko's uh, influences on young players these days? Do you when, well, when you're teaching? Do you speak about him all the time? Yeah, okay. all the time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Probably almost like every second lesson. Okay. You know? Yeah, because because it's just so much of it, it's just so omnipresent. It's more omnipresent than we even than probably young players even know now. It's mm. so it's so in the in the uh, base psyche of the last. 40 years mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I kind of I, I talk about it too in that uh, you know the, the Jaco kind of phenomenon is an interesting one in that it's easy to you know with a lot of with a lot of those amazing players uh, like true sort of um, visionary players there's something that's quite easy to skim off the top of their thing it's like you can hear a lot of saxophone players sort of sound like Michael Brecker because there's a certain part of it that's you can sort of superficially sound like Brecker. Yeah, yeah. You could sort of superficially sound like Pat Metheny. Yeah. You can super- you can kind of sound like Jeff Beccaro and stuff. Yeah. Bad, but you and like you can not- sort of do that with Jack, and a lot of people do. Yeah, you right. sort of play a few slurpy things and a handful of harmonics and they head to Teen Town, you know, and that's a lot of people's sort of goal with it, which which is okay. But really if you're going to – I realised at a certain point, like you're either going to have to leave this alone – or be prepared to really try to f- find what it is that you want to walk through those doors and find your own thing with it. And there's plenty of great examples of that. Like uh, Michael Brecker has obviously done that with John Coltrane. And um, there's well, there's tons of examples of it throughout history where you, you, if you're going to be if you're going to sort of cop that stuff. You've got to find, really walk through the doors and find your own way with it. And and there's lots of bass great. I mean, probably talking about bass, see, we're bass players here and we're talking about Jacko. I mean, there are some post-Jacko bass players. What uh, Victor Bailey would be one. Uh, Jeff Andrews would be another. Um, or there's a young guy, Hadrian Farrell. Um There's plenty of them, actually, who really sound like themselves. You know, they, they've obviously walked through the doors that he... Mm. Opened, and he opened so many doors. I don't even think he could walk through all of them properly. Like we talked, you know, fully rather, not properly, fully. Like we talked at the beginning about how that first album had the, the sort of Donna Lee and then all those tracks on it. You know, he he could have just uh, continued on with the bebop idea and been improvising probably solos like Donna Lee. Mm. Had he have just gone with that, yeah, or he could have. There are guys now that write concertos for harmonics or something, you yeah, know. Yeah, like guys yeah. that just yeah. they, they know <laughs> all these bad. harmonics in places where there aren't even harmonics, and detune harmonics on the run, and you know that have op- that have gone through the door that he opened about that. And then there's that tune on that first album, which is called um, uh, what's it called? It used to be a cha cha. Which I think, which is my personal favourite, Pastorius solo, which is his take on sort of contemporary jazz lines. Um, you, you could have walked through that door. You could, there's so many doors that he opened that you could have. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble. That's what it's all about. Yeah. 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 I just wanted to add that um, I think it was Marcus Miller said uh, a quote about Jarko, and I, I'm. 
my memory's terrible, but I'm so I'm paraphrasing this, but it was something along the lines of like that Jaco had forced him to learn harmony, you know. And the one thing great that I that I well, one thing I tell my students that's great about Jaco is that you do have to sort of like learn about harmony and and you know all those sweet notes that Jaco hits, you know, he's he's doing what the horn players and piano players have been doing for years and that's playing the um, high, the upper extensions of the chord. So you have a dominant chord, you know, you've got your root third, fifth and flat seventh, you know, you've got the upper tensions are like the, you know, the nine and the sharp 11, 13 and stuff, you know, and you can sort of like think of these extended chords and, and Jaco's, um, you know, uh, body of work, it, certainly in Donna Lee, certainly in Havona, um, you know, he's playing all those really sweet notes that these other instruments have been, you know, playing for years. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, when you when you kind of like check out Jaco's solos and, and, and even like even in some of these comping lines, you know, he's playing some of those really nice tensions and, and he's also superimposing chords on, on chords as well. Like, you know, he's playing pentatonics. Um, not just starting on the root of the chord, he's starting on the fifth of the chord or sometimes even the second or the ninth of the chord as well um, to get those upper tensions, you know. So, you know, Jaco certainly um, it, it forces it, – it's, it's that knowledge is suddenly part of, the, you know, part of the, his, you know, um, repertoire, mm. you know. So if you are learning, you know, Havona and, or Donnelly or any of those things, Continuum – um, all those tunes, you know, you you get bass players are getting access to that stuff just by learning it. You know, hopefully, um, you know, and that can kind of like, you know, uh, make them better improvisers. You know, they put put them in the same territory as as you know your horn players and piano players, and guitar players. So uh, yeah, that's the valuable thing that uh, I think you know students can learn from learning Jaco's music and solos. Mm. Yeah, uh, I don't. And actually introduced Jaco to my students still much later on because most of my students are still trying to get a handle on the bass, you know. And um, their idea of coming to learn bass, I mean, they come with their contemporary heroes at at that time. So, yep. you know, whether it's like Flea or, yep. you know, s- somebody of that calibre and it's like, okay, that's cool. And then you, you sort of question them on the history of the bass and what they know about it and, and all this. Then I sort of introduce them to Jaco and they just like, uh, you know, jaw-dropping stuff. Um, they're sort of like the the young students. Uh, the intermediate players, um, like you mentioned before, they have heard of Jaco, but you, the playing – the the stuff that they do is just like just skimming, skimming stuff off of them. They don't actually go into learning all about it. And you can tell because they don't really understand their their harmony and their theory and all that. So it's just basically copycat stuff. Mm-hmm. And they go off and practice in their bedroom and, you know, woodshed and stuff and you come back and over the weeks or months and all that, it's there's no real sort of progress in in the knowledge of that harmonic, concept so it's a bit too sort of advanced for them so you just sort of step down a little bit and then you just sort of carry on with because you got to build steps you can't just sort of get to the top yeah and just like oh yeah i know a bit about this you know that's only stuff that you skimmed 
So, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's, you know, in, in the education area, that's how it is with the base students that I have, you know. They, they're more into what they want to know about what's yeah. happening out there today, yeah. which is, um, it's not sad. It, it, it's, it's the times we live in, you know. It's just that, you know, like us four here on the table now, we're very fortunate that we've grown up exposed to it and it's we got a different educational experience from that from what our contemporaries the young contemporaries are today you know. hmm. bada bing bada boom <laughs> I'm not really an educator um right. but yes, okay uh, cheers sex <laughs> and, uh, and good night um <laughs> but uh, I'd like to be someday you know maybe but I, I just you know like I I from the perspective of like skimming the music which I know a lot of young players and, to be honest, there's players that probably get on 20, 30 years and they're still skimming, you know what I mean, like uh, to be honest. But f- what I learnt from that video, which was kind of the gospel for pretty much when I, when I was a teenager and just starting on the base, was that actually Jocko sort of quite openly acknowledged where he pulled everything from. He was all about exactly where... He played Jerry's baseline yeah. to him on that in that interview. He played Funky Broadway, Broadway. Yeah. and and um, you know he had a massive Latin influence. He of Cubans and Puerto Ricans in in uh, Florida. Um, you know, like you can hear the Latin influences everywhere. And I, I'm so, like I pretty much sort of looked at what I thought made up Jocko, and for ages I was like, oh, man, I'm trying to do this, but like it's not. That's it was it's so specific and so deep and so full on that I started kind of thinking of it in a, in a different way that I, I instead of sort of sort of sl- st- you start off skimming and then you kind of you start getting worn down because you're just like oh, man you know like and and also people weren't accepting of it when I was when I kind of was doing it like I was went into a jazz course at the very time that everybody's like no you electric bass you should be playing double bass and anybody that was as serious about jazz as I was. Um, and still am really, but like as as serious as I was when I was first started studying it, was that you? I should be playing double. I should be playing double bass, and I was like, no, 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 no. And I just and I would point at Jocko, and I would just be like, no, there's that guy there, and nobody can actually fuck with that guy because he sort of defined mm. sort of a bit a, a great part of what we were, what electric bass was capable of doing. Um, playing jazz but just playing music really mm. and his influences start started to st- you know they just stick out you know and he he would mention them and you would kind of and I started digging back and that's when I realized that you really got to look at the history of, of where he's coming from like you said he learned Ron Carter's mm. you know he would have you can hear that he's checked he's out checked Ron out. Carter's baseline in Herbie's original recording from the 60s of Speak Like a Child, right? Mm. So, you know, like he reached back. He he dug into the history. Charlie Parker, man, you know, this music from the 40s, you know, and, you know, like he, I just feel like he was just such a musical sponge and he just took everything that he could, that he would. And that was the lesson that I took from it is actually to get deep, to get as deep as someone like Jocko or any of these amazing musicians that we idolise is actually you, you look at their influence. Who were their masters? Who was, who's the masters of the masters? You know, you kind of got to look at lineage and, and, and history and dig back and know that Jocko would have been digging on Duck Darnie, would have been digging on James Jameson. He definitely would have been digging on um, Rocco. You know, like, he, he, you know, there was elements 
that would have fed into him being a 22-year-old and then having sort of checked out this massive range of music. And he just poured – he managed to just uh, just distill it into him almost immediately. Like that was the, going back to that sort of coming out fully formed thing. So, you know, as far as people kind of like t- – they sort of cherry-pick elements of what he does – and like we were talking about sound before, I feel like the sound thing, they just sort of go, go the sound and go, yeah, that's the sound and, mm-hmm. and chop out over the sound. That's not, no, that's not it. And then maybe they get the the, the, the idea of the busy interactive playing or they, you know, I don't know. It, it just feels like people sort of need to sort of like look at what made him up. Mm-hmm. And then I've been, I keep coming back to him. Like, like I'm sure all of you do as well. You keep coming back to him and going, oh, man. You know, now compositionally is the thing that really kicks it for me when when I listen to anything that he's done, like Forgotten Love, like this, the piano and strings kind of yeah. thing that's on that record and, mm. and all that string arranging and even the word of mouth. Like I love um, Three Views of a Secret. Mm. It's a, be- a beautiful song, man. Like they're just beautiful songs, you know, and he's, he's um, as a musician, he just, you can't just go cherry pick the, virtuosic stuff or the sound or you know go and that's it it's not that you actually have to dig right into what he dug into and then come back to it and go oh you know like every i sort of discover something new i listen to donna lee and tonight listen to it again for the millionth time and i've you know i i'm still inspired by it i still there's still more to learn you know anyway rant over (laughs) (laughs) um We'll listen to another track now. Um, I think Havona was one that has been talked about a fair bit. Mm. So, um, Thank you. 
Ah, oh, just just set to, to sort of room. It's like the soundtrack of a whole period of my life. That yeah, right. album. You know, it's a, so it's making me think about. I was just thinking about. The, well, thoughts different things were drifting in and out, but I, I know that again. The, the solo, it's like the Donna Lee that that solo for that was composed, but it doesn't make it any less an incredible <laughs> musical statement. And um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting tune. It's a bunch of just major seven sharp eleven chords moving around, and I noticed that I just just from a, uh, something I checked out with that is that he. Um, Two notes. This he he does this often in solos where he picks a couple of notes rather than chase because those chords are all the same quality. They're all major chords. Goes like E major to C major to B major to G major, and then there's a bit of another chord. But that he pivots things off of these two notes, which is B and F sharp, and those two notes are in all of those chords. C major, so B and F sharp. It's the the E major, the B and F sharp. B major chord, the B and F sharp, and then the G major chord, B and F sharp. So he pivots off these notes, pivots lines off of them, rather than chasing the chord around, rather than going E major, C major, B major, G major. He's really, he's a really smart guy. Like the way he, I've noticed that in other things he's done too, where he just pick a little tonality or a little pentatonic, or a little two triads or A notes or something. And just pivot off it and build and then go into the dart into the other chords from these pivot notes rather than chasing it around. And it gives it such a, uh, a, mel- a more melodic sort of way of thinking rather than sort of chasing off the root notes all the time, you know. And the thing is, and, and the other thing is he uses the groove as well. So, you know, it's just that's that's his, not comeback, but that's his little fallback to you. Mm. And that groove just... Complete. Uh, it just distracts you, but it, he's already thinking about what he's going to do next. You know. Yeah, I'm just echoing what Steve just said. I mean, that's you know what I was saying before about understanding harmony. You know, and understanding the common tones between all those chords that are unrelated. You know, they're just the, you know, they call planing chords. You know, the same quality, just taken to different. Um, of different roots and, uh, yeah, and, and, but Jaco is well aware of, of, you know, how I can just make this really uh, melodic motivic idea fit through these chords and maybe just changing a note here and there depending on the chord, you know. So that's, you know, understanding the harmony which is really, really important. Um, what I love about this particular track too is like, you know, I mean, just his accompaniment you know, it's just him. It's him and drums, really. The melody is just basically just like really sparse, really simple. You know, it's like minims and a bit of syncopation here and there. He's driving it, you know, and the drums, you know, with the, the ride pattern there, um, the rhythm's all coming from him, you know. Um, just a, it's, a, it's a great tune. And, like, I, I had heard, um, as Steve mentioned, that, that the solo had, had been composed. Um, you know, it's a... Uh, uh, can we get to hear the solo? Just yeah. I suppose there's people out there that probably want to uh, for me with the track. I mean, just just check this solo out. It's just how, how outstanding. Oh, it's after the yeah, it's after the sax oh. solo. That's it. That's the start. If you can want to pull it back, maybe I'm good, eh? I'm ten clever. seconds. Yeah. That's a good right on. Yeah. Uh, right on. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. 
That's just a killer solo, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever seen or heard of him slap? Only for the, the looping thing. Only for the looping thing. I've only ever heard. And that was more of it. There's one yeah, note. Yeah, yeah. It's not really. It's not the same. Yeah, you know. It's not really. I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what he does. Yeah. <laughs> There's one note in a tune. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a Flora Purim album. The album's called Every Day, Every Night, and there's this beautiful tune. I think Jacko plays on about four or five tunes on that album, but there's one tune called The Hope, and he does a not, not so much a slap but a pop, you know, with yep. the um, pluck, your back. And that, that's the only time I've ever heard him do that. Yeah, right. Actually, that's a gorgeous tune, man. You've got to check that tune out. It's called uh, The Hope, Flora Purim. Actually, uh, we must um, we must – not forget too that Jaco was actually a good drummer too. He was a good. He started yeah, you know, I mean, he you know, Teen Town and and he started as a drummer. That's most, right. Most good things start with drummers. Yeah, and he's often he's often sort of like there, playing. There he's often like playing um, live podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> he's often playing conga patterns on his on the bass, yeah. you know, yeah. like behind solos and mm. stuff too, you know. So yeah, he's he's certainly got the rhythm in the blood. That's he, for sure. It's pure rhythm and mel- melody to me when I listen yeah. to mm. him. You know, it's just. Beautiful, you know, like I love it. He's an animal. Like there, you know, there's parts in there that in that solo where he's just like, you know, you can you can feel him, you know, you can just feel him. He's just intense, you know. He's but, not fudging any of it. No, no, nothing. Like it's, it's, it's it's just all clean. There's no I, I I can't hear any like scuffing or any, you know. It's just it's just you know he's, why people would maybe disappointed a little bit in those live kind of nightclub recordings in the eighties when he wasn't kind of as as well. Like I, I just saw them for what they were. I just saw them for like these, these are gigs, man. They're just out. He's mm. just out yeah. smashing it. And the, you know, I love Kenwood Denard, and I, you know, like I, I actually really dig some of those, just because the vibe, because it feels like they're in a club. Mm. You know, there's just for that for that aspect. But like he was just such a on it, pristine virtuosic musician. But yeah. it's just rhythm and melody, simple, plain and simple. You know, like for me, you know, my in my head. Yeah. I know uh, Kimwood Denard was one of Abe's teachers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Do you know if um, – did Abe ever, ever tell you stories that – All the time. About, about Jack? I, 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 uh, not – there might have been a few um, which he never really relayed to me, but uh, Abe's, um, Abe's take on his lessons with Kenwood was always stories. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Little let, less playing, more stories. Mm. Oh, it just got to the point where, okay, it's like, uh, I mean, oh, by the way, like he was really like deaf, mm. Kenwood was, you know, mm. he, like mm. he'd play in front of a PA system in his drum room. Mm. That's how it was. 
Abe had to wear earplugs yeah, right. <laughs> every lesson. Mm. But um, yeah, no, there was a lot of stories which I never really got secondhand information on that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm. But uh, yeah, broken play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He actually left uh, um, Berkeley and went to New York and started up his own drum school. Mm-hmm. And asked Abe if he would like to sort of follow him down there. And he said, no, nah, no, nah, I've got to finish the course, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Otherwise my folks would just <laughs> send me back to Australia. <laughs> That's it. I, uh, waste of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, Adam was just talking about those New York City um, bootleg CDs, you know, right? Um, I, I've got all – I'm a bit of a Jacko file. I've got pretty much everything he ever played on, on um, CD and – I must say that I, I, I bought all those New York City things and I, I when I listen to them I, I, I just feel sad, you know, because I'm I'm sure that Jarko wouldn't have if he was alive, he wouldn't have wouldn't you know, have wouldn't have let we gave yeah. permission for those things to be released, mm. right? You know, someone who does, who composes stuff like that like he was pretty much through the whole seventies, you know, with, yeah. he he would probably wouldn't have been happy with that, but absolutely, at least anyway, you, know, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, someone released them because they're gonna make a buck, you know. Um, um, out of his legacy, sort of thing, um, but you know, there, there are moments of greatness, in, you know, that, that kind of shine through in some of those things. I mean, I've also got the the um, the stuff that he uh, did with Borelli Legrand in Italy. You know, the honestly, honesty live, and and all that stuff. And uh, you know, you know, yeah, Jaco, you know, had his licks and and all that sort of stuff. But geez, you know, I mean, it, it just just amazing. Um, playing, you know. I mean, he's left such an incredible legacy, hasn't he? I mean, you know, good. The good stuff will will just kind of, you know, influence generations of bass players after us. You know, um, he's going to be one of those guys that, you know, you look back on on music history and it's just like, well, if you're going to learn electric, electric bass, you've got to familiarise yourself with the legacy of Jaka. You know, um, and I think that uh, yeah, he's certainly um, well. I'm sure he's inf- definitely influenced all of us. Um, yeah, just sad. All that stuff. It was a, a tragic end. Um, you know what happened and all that stuff. But um, that's what happened. You know, with these bright lights, they just burn out quickly. Unfortunately, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, it hasn't waned at all. Like the, you can just see on on social media. Like there's more more uh, Jacko is more present than ever. Actually. In all those social media things, there's lots of um, Pastorius um, tribute sort of pages and people posting, Shrines. and much more so than some other people. That I was thinking actually, I wish there was more uh, about Tony Williams like that. It made me think about Tony, you know, and how important a drummer Tony Williams is, and how little there is. In um, you and I talked about this, yeah, in in, yeah. in sort of um, promoting Tony's legacy, mm. amazing legacy. Mm. There's not that much, you know, but for Jacko's more present than ever. It's kind of much more, yeah, probably than anybody I can think of, just about other than say Hendrix. Mm. Yeah. And I think Eddie Van Halen's going to have the same thing oh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. the same same kind of character in a way, same kind of place mm. in, in with the instrument. Yeah. Maybe not as a composer, but just, you know, same kind of importance. Yeah. Yeah. Just talking about Tony there, wouldn't it have been great to have heard more Trio of Doom? Yeah. Tony Williams, yeah. Jaco and, and John McLaughlin. It would. 
Whoa. Tony that, plays. That, yeah. Yeah. Tony plays a couple of tracks on that um, on the weather report, Mister Gone, and there's a little known Herbie track with Tony and Herbie and Jacko mm. called um, Good Question. I think it's called. It's called Good Question. It's off a Herbie album called Sunlight, mm-hmm. and it's just Herbie and, and Jacko and Tony. That's from '78. To put Herbie Hancock, good question. It should come up. It's pretty. Because that, f- that trio of doom, like, yeah, from what I've didn't I've quite read, work out, did it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, apparently, the rehearsals were just off, off the hook. Yeah. They had people interested. They had, you know, A and R people just lining up. This is um, going to be amazing. And then Jacko, something happened, and then they did a gig, and they were supposed to play these songs. And then Jacko just turned around and started playing Portrait of Tracy or something in the middle of it. Turned the bass right up and, you know, apparently Tony Williams never ever forgave him for it. Eh? Just wow. Tony smashed his kid apparently. That <laughs> yeah, that's right. Smashed, yeah. smashed his, his gear. Yeah, that's freak, right. Freaked Jacko yeah, out. Freak, yeah, yeah. Because Tony was a fiery character apparently. <laughs> he went, or he didn't, he didn't suffer fools at all. Yeah. F- foolishness at all. He was yeah, a, I wouldn't fuck with him. He was a solid-looking dude. He was, <laughs> he was, he was little, mm. but he was yeah, uh, but just stocky. Like yeah, yeah bald yeah. <laughs> What's that? What's that Herbie song? It's called "Good Question." It's a good question. Yeah, seventy-eight yeah, from an album called Sunlight. Track. Yeah, it's yeah. cool, man. Yeah. That's what I love, love about this. It's great. And they just sit on one of those ostinatos there on that track. They, mm. He goes into he sort of slides around a little, then settles on an ostinato, then like it just sits and sits and sits, and then Tony just makes it just shit itself. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that in getting towards the end? It's, it's probably uh, probably more like halfway. Through. <laughs>
just ferocious. <laughs> Amazing. It's really reminiscent of Kuru, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very Thank much you so. for that, Steve. Yeah. I, I had not heard that one. That's, yeah, me too. That's that was so. fucking awesome. Um, Mark, you mentioned earlier, talk a little bit about his um, compositional stuff and his, his orchestrations and, and that kind of stuff. And, I mean, that this was after Weather Report. This was um, – he was, yeah, starting to get quite ill at this stage, but still extremely creative. And there's, oh yeah, I can't can't remember if it was the um, was it the Word of Mouth band? Word of Mouth big band, yeah. Yeah, there's one album where he he'd be in there, then he'd call someone in to do their track. Oh, the uh, Crisis off the yeah, yep, yeah. off and, the and Word of Mouth they, album. They wouldn't yeah. hear what they wouldn't have heard what the other guy just did. Yeah. So they just do do their that's right. Bit play. That's right. I forgot about that one. And the record yeah. co- and the record yeah. company were freaking out because yeah. I mean that was the tight that was the opening track of the album. Yeah. With this kind of atonal, you know, yeah. cacophony of sound, you know, mm. and and uh, Jaco fought quite hard to get that <laughs> track on there, and they were yeah. like, you know, no, 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 and he Jaco got his way, and mm. I think that that you know a lot of people were kind of like just were like, what was what is this, you know. Because um, that album didn't do as well as the debut album, mm. um, although there were some great tracks on it. I mean, one of my favourite tracks is Liberty City, um, and that's on that album. And Three Views of a Secret, um, John and Mary, um, you know, just uh, oh, Chromatic Fantasy, you know. So we talked about Donna Lee. I mean, here's Jaco playing, you know, Bach's Chromatic Fantasy on the bass, you know. And I think he said in an interview it took him ten years to practice it, you know, to get it down, you know. Got to take me like ten lifetimes, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I mean, Jaco was just an amazing. Uh, he was an as we've, we've talked about throughout this podcast. I mean, he was an amazing musician. You know, I mean, he could play really nice. You know, there's footage of him playing. Um, I think it's on the Modern Electric piano. Bass video. He's playing piano. He's playing, you know, um, Liberty City, right? He's yeah. like, yeah, and, and it's just beautiful, you know. And he's just kind of right on top of it. It's just, you know. Um, uh, he was just the complete musician, you know, and and he kind of alludes to that, you know, he, he, when he talks about like learning tunes, you know, like you know, he's learn learn the melody, you know. I mean, how many bass players learn the melody of a of a tune? That we just learn, you know, predominantly we just learn the bass part. That's all we've got to worry about. But if you want to become like a, a, a well rounded musician, you know, learn the melody, learn the chords, learn the harmony, you know, learn all that stuff, you know. Uh, it just adds to your musicianship, you know. Um, you know, and there's a story where, you know, uh, Jarko, uh, his dad told him that he wanted Jarko to learn how to read music and while his dad went off on tour. And, uh, you know, when he came back, he wanted Jarko to, you know, have the, the reading thing down, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and that was – that. so his musicianship was reflected in, in his compositions. You know, we talked about his string writing, you know, um, you know, I, I, not much more I can say, really. I mean, it's just like the the complete. You know, I mean, there's, you know, Teen Town. That was his tune. You know, he he composed that. You know, every bass player, pretty in the world, probably learns that tune at some point. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, his legacy speaks for itself, really. Mm. You know, check out his albums. Yeah. You know, yeah. learn his tunes. Yeah. Uh, Steve. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, you know, the whole kind of because Jacko was a, a charismatic kind of guy and 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 brilliant and all that stuff. 
was also it's really important to remember that he was also just a really hard working guy. Like he worked really hard. He practiced a lot and um, spent a lot of lot of put a lot of elbow grease into that. It's it's he really um who's that that expression to polish the diamond, you know, like he, he really polished the diamond. It wasn't and that that's one thing I actually you see on social media, you know, quite a bit. So I was like, oh this guy is like is a sort of this deity worship thing. And it kind of I find it a bit irritating because it's like, hang on a minute, this guy just worked really, really hard. Yeah. As Mark just said, he put ten years into learning Bach's chromatic fantasy and spent the time to sit down and learn Charlie Parker and mm. compose lines across Charlie Parker harmony. And uh, he was into um, twelve-tone music, um, tone rows. Um, he was into um, just all sorts of areas of study, actually. So it's not just sort of this inspired um, guy from another planet. Mm. And, and actually, we, I, I mean, I've heard, and maybe you guys have too, tapes of Jacob, you know, that tune called The Chicken, like it's a yeah. sort of rhythm and blues, a couple of dominant chords going around. Um, I've heard um, recordings of him playing that at 16, and it's fine, you know, but it's it's not like, you know, it's not... There's nothing really out of the ordinary. So, you know, this was a guy that he worked to get to that too. It's not – he just wasn't sort of a divinely it's – not, it's not like Mozart or someone, mm. you know. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing for for people to to remember about Jacko too, you know, just that it was a, this was a hardworking, pragmatic guy mm. who had a family to feed and things to do. Mm. It's a frightening amount of work. It's like, you know, it's massive. Like to play like, like, you know, we talked about him sort of coming out full formed. He was, we were exposed, the world was exposed to him fully formed through recording. So obviously he was picked up at that point. But like you say, you know, like it's a phenomenal amount of work to play the way, make that sound, you know, and, you know, make that kind of music. You know, he was, you know, there's that kind of technique, you know, just, it's just phenomenal. Like, I, you know, it's, I haven't actually – this has been an amazing experience to go back to for him because I, I go away and I come back and I go away and I come back and I, I'm always just – it's the same every time, you know. Like, you know, I can keep listening and just dig on it and hear more, you know, like every single time. That's, I think it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be like that for the rest of our journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you know, you come in and out and you come in and out. And yeah. I had um, – do you remember a band called uh, – you weren't in Sydney. They had a band called Supermarket. <laughs> yeah. And we did a few Jaco tunes, uh, Liberty City and Come On, Come Over. And to play that, you know, with the same lineup, like the brass and everything, man, what an enjoyable Sorry. experience. Mm. I mean, I had to sing it and play Come On, Come Over to at the same oh. time. So it was like oh, wow. the pressure was on me. <laughs> 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 Playing a Yamaha BB3000. Sorry, yeah. Jaco. <laughs> <laughs> that was my working base back then. Yeah. But uh Liberty City, man, I mean you you play that you play that song in the in, inside a big band and mm. you're hearing all this, you know, brass it's like, whoa. Yeah. It just gives you goosebumps, you yeah. know. It's like, whoa. Yeah. And then you just come in with your own 
you just play a double stop thing. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, Jacko, this is you, man. <laughs> yeah. We're only just playing it in, you know, dedication to you. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And it'll never, it'll never go away, you know. For, you know, like, like you mentioned, Adam, you know, mm. we come in, we go out, we come back in, we go out. It's mm. still, it's like, mm. ah, yeah, my soul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Refreshing. Like yeah. Thank you. I let yeah. it go for about 10 years. At one point I didn't listen. I, I, I bought a six string. Um, started playing six. I played six string bass for um, six or seven years and then a five string with a high C, extra high C string. I didn't listen to Jacko for a period of about eight or nine years. Mm. I just sort of needed to leave it alone and think of other things and try other things. And, and then, again, you know, come back to it and think of it in a different way and hear new things and you come back to it as a more mature uh, man and musician yourself mm. and um, find out what it means to you now and all that stuff. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a lifelong companion, I think companion Jacko's music wonderful all right gentlemen thank you so much for joining me in this uh, Jacko Pistorius spotlight episode of the Gig Life podcast pleasure I wish you guys all the best and um, we'll do it soon with somebody else all right boys take it easy thank you Stevie thanks Stevie man congratulations bro oh thank you man yeah happy 100 mate thank you very much pleasure to be here and pleasure with all these cats all these cats too okay 100, not out. Not out. (laughs) (laughs) And we're out.
Thank you.